Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa S. Berkuldova. Joining me today are Simon Egbert, postdoctoral fellow at Bielefeld University on an ERC project uh, dealing with the future of prediction, and Matthias Lies, senior researcher at the Center for Security Studies in Zurich, to discuss their recent book, Criminal Futures, Predictive Policing and Everyday Police Work, published in 2021 with Routledge. Welcome to the show, Simon and Matthias. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Great to have you. <laughs> so just to frame this discussion that will follow a bit. Today we focus on predictive policing and the ways in which it is transforming police work. Police departments across the globe are embracing algorithmic techniques to support decision making through risk assessments and predictions based on big data and real-time analytics, utilizing tools such as facial recognition and so forth. Silicon Valley's technological solutionism, to use Evgeny Morozov's concept, has been making its way into law enforcement agencies across the globe, promising to smoothly, efficiently and effortlessly anticipate, predict and control future criminal behavior and deviance. But predictive policing has met with resistance from civil society and academics alike. Even though data-driven predictions and algorithmic risk assessments are sold by tech developers as neutral and objective forms of evidence and intelligence, because technological, as something solid and hard in liquid times, critical social scientists tend to know better. <laughs> what counts as data and how it is collected, what is included and what excluded, all this reflects historical, representational, cultural, gender and other inequalities and biases. Prejudices about criminality of certain groups can be built into crime data, resulting in their reinforcement rather than dispelling. We increasingly read about systems trained on biased and dirty data, about rogue algorithms and algorithmic injustice and violations of human rights and civil liberties. As Katie O'Neill put it, algorithms can create a pernicious feedback loop where policing itself spawns new data which justifies more policing. Last year, acting on these insights, the city of Santa Cruz in California, one of the earliest adopters of predictive policing, became the first city in the United States to ban the use of predictive technologies in policing. Calls for ethical, transparent and explainable AI are emerging both from within computer science, law and social sciences, and from policymakers and civil society. It is clear that both the development and adoption of these technologies does not happen in a cultural, political or economic vacuum. In many countries, for instance, police forces are experiencing financial cuts, increasing pressures to outsource certain tasks to private actors, often accompanied by organizational reform. Demands on response time, results, performance and efficiency are increasing, while resources may be shrinking thus structurally creating a market for a wide range of optimization tools for police work. So, Simon and Matthias, you have studied predictive policing, the datification of security, and the transformation of police work ethnographically in Germany and Switzerland. What is the reality behind the sleek commercials for predictive policing software that promises to forecast crime and control futures? Are we headed towards a dystopian society of total surveillance, social sorting and control, or a utopia of a perfectly optimized police force? <laughs> what futures lie ahead for predictive policing? And what will the police force of the future look like if you were to allow yourself some predictions of your own? <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Simon. That um, the reality of predictive policing, at least in Germany and Switzerland, has not very much to do with the the picture big companies uh, are painting in their commercials about predicting crime. Right. So I don't know. We start our book with this um, commercial of IBM, and which is, um, as far as I'm concerned, quite famous or quite a famous commercial. Um, and um, the clip shows a police officer who is waiting um, before a store in front of the store uh, for the robber to, to come by and to stop him from robbing uh, the store. And um, of course, pre crime predictions yeah, uh, uh, in present days are not that precise. So they are about um, not exact time, times, but about um, time spans, a few days. They are not about specific locations, but certain um, yeah, um, areas, right? So they are not that precise that the police officer can say, okay, I'm driving to this store at, I don't know, three o'clock, and I wait there five minutes, have a cup of coffee to uh, prevent the robber from robbing the store. So this is um, not the reality. The reality is much more uh, imprecise. The reality of predictive policing is much more messy. And the reality of predictive policing is it has not that much to do with big data, to be honest. So in your book, you present a convincing case for studying algorithmic crime analysis as a socio-technical practice. I think you already pointed out that it is very messy and so on, and it's not the, it doesn't look in reality like the commercial, right? And, but this kind of practice that transforms both the police and the society, right? And in the way it is incorporated. Uh, so what becomes kind of important in this sense is not only the technology as such, but the ways in which the police departments incorporate these tools in their organizational structures and in their occupational cultures. Uh, viewed here in the light of political, economic, and legal frameworks. Maybe you could tell us more about how you went in practice about studying this incredibly complex phenomenon. Matthias. May I just take this question? Um, I think, f first of all, I think you, you kind of really um, did a good job in sketching out what is at stake and, um, you know, kind of... Uh, contrasting the expectations, but also the fears that, you know, both practitioners as well as uh, civil society organizations have when it comes to predictive policing. Um, but as Simon was saying, I think a lot of these um, imaginaries are actually pipe dreams. You know, they, they sound fancy, they sound like a, a techno-utopia, but in the end, when you go into the police as an organization, um, you will find that technology is only one small aspect um, when it comes to the regulation of crime. And so, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I have this joke where I say we, we started out by, by doing research on algorithms and we ended up writing a book on uh, organizational sociology, pretty much. And I think this, this actually pretty much sums it up um, in terms of how police organizations as knowledge producers make use of technology. Um, of course, it is, an, it is considered an important tool and they themselves frame it as a, 
as a means of you know getting a better grip on the future, um, being more accurate, also being more just. Um, this is also a narrative that you know features strongly in predictive policing. But in the end, um, I think what we did with our ethnographic work, um, you know, we, we kind of shadowed um, uh, operators when uh, doing uh, when actually working with predictive policing software. Um, with, uh, we spoke with police officials from from all levels. Um, you know, starting with patrol officers uh, who you know go out in the streets and do the actual crime prevention. Um, we spoke with analysts, but we also spoke with uh, you know people from the strategic level, like um, you know the, the more policy-oriented parts of uh, police organizations. And um, so, speaking with all these people, we tried to get a, um, I would say, a bit of a comprehensive picture um, in terms of how analytically produced prediction actually come into being and how they come to matter. Right? And these things, um, they are separate, but they're also quite closely connected, of course, within organizations. And so our perspective um, really highlights how within complex organizations you know, that are um, made up of, uh, of different divisions who uh, are each specialized in, in doing a, um, a small amount of work and then you know, passing over insights from that, from that work um, to the next division, where it then gets incorporated into a new rationale, um, you know, it must be adopted to uh, existing practices. Um, it must be adopted to uh, to resources, um, to larger strategic goals, et cetera, et cetera. So we highlight all these uh, small translation processes that occur when doing predictive policing, and that starts, of course, by generating the data, and it ends up by you know police officers in the street um, driving to a certain location because uh, allegedly there is a higher risk of crime. Interesting. Uh, as an anthropologist, I always have this annoying question of how did you negotiate and gain access to the different police departments? I mean, were they were they keen on having you? Were they suspicious of having researchers uh, snooping around uh, uh, on how their predictive policing systems work? How, how did you manage to? Because you, you worked with quite a number of police departments, if I remember correctly, 11 in uh, Switzerland and seven Germany. So how, how did you go about, uh, about gaining access? Um, actually, um, th there were two things that, you know, kind of played into our hands. Um, the first one is that Simon was working at a, um, at a research project at the time. Um, so he got funding and he got uh, the reputation that comes with the funding. So if you put that on the letterhead, um, I think institutions uh, such as the police are in general more willing to speak with you. Um, for me, um, a similar thing was, was true um, because I work at uh, ETH Zurich, which is uh, kind of the most famous uh, university in Switzerland, and it's, it's very well-renowned. And so, uh, again, if you put the ETH logo on a letterhead um, or you just you know talk to people and you're like, okay, I work at ETH, then I think there's a general willingness to, to engage. Um, and I think the, the second... Um, important factor that, that facilitated our work was that um, police departments themselves were quite uncertain about how to deal with predictive policing technology, right? So the, the tech was, was quite new at the time. 
um, it was still being implemented, it was still being experimented with. And of course, um, police departments were facing all kinds of you know, public pressure in terms of, you know, how this could backfire in terms of, you know, civil rights, uh, human rights, um, all these kinds of ethical aspects that you were speaking about earlier. So I think police departments actually saw speaking to us as, you know, neutral researchers as an opportunity to um, to show to the outside what they are doing and how this might actually not be as bad as sometimes presented in the media. So I think, you know, these two factors, um, I think, facilitated how we got access. And I think access in general was was pretty good. Um, I think it was 11 police departments overall that we engaged with. And uh, we did not really get rejected from anyone. Um, and of course, this is also due to the fact that once you get your foot in the door, um, you know, once you get acquainted with people, um, people talk amongst each other and you know, as, as soon as the first departments started to realize that, you know, we were not out there to, to cause them any harm, but, you know, to do actual research, um, it kind of, you know, your, your reputation then precedes you and, you know, people are, I think, more, more willing and open to, to speaking with you. Yeah, um, first of all, um, I can agree to that, of course. I think the institutional um, surrounding was quite important. Um, I was at the um, Institute for Criminological Research at that, at that time in this project Matthias mentioned. And yeah, we, we asked we, the question, basically main question of our research project was how uh, is policing or police practice transforming with predictive policing, with crime prediction software? And this question or these questions around that uh, were actually questions the police um, uh, asked themselves, right? And they were interested in uh, uh, what uh, we will, um, yeah, what our results will be. And I think they were really interested in uh, what we are doing. And so they were open to to give us give us access. Um, actually, um, I got re rejected one time only. Uh, which was, and I think this not is not a coincidence. Which was when I tried to get an idea of a person-based prediction system used by the police in Germany, um, and they said, "Okay, no, we cannot invite you because actually what we are doing is not predictive policing because it's not that technology uh, technologically fancy and it's not really about predicting." So, um, which also points to this idea that okay we are uh, predictive policing is uh, allegedly only about uh, areas and in space which is uh, much less debated as predicting crime risks concerning persons right and i think this is also a, an important element why police um, departments were quite open to to our research this is interesting. Uh, let us now maybe spool back a little. Uh, the ideas that uh, underpin predictive policing are in a sense not radical in you, and you pointed out very nicely in your book. Uh, you discuss the origins of predictive policing and consider it kind of as another step in the history to render police more efficient and effective. So it kind of comes in a long tradition of other effectivization technologies and modes of uh, organizing work. And you link it, among others, to kind of increased scientification of policing since the 80s 
and a political legal mindset set on preventing undesired events before they happen and kind of the interventions into the future, uh, the logic that has already been there before the ever invention of predictive policing software as such. Could you tell us more about these kind of trajectories of crime prevention? Um, what 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 we learned in, in our research is really that one of the success factors of predictive policing, so um, in relation to other security technologies, um, in at least in, in the German-speaking world, the um, predictive policing can indeed be called a success, not really in terms of it's successful in preventing crime, but it was very um, able to, to yeah, be implemented in many different departments quite fastly, to be honest. And uh, we thought that, or we, we learned in our research that something uh, that has to do with that is that it's not really radically new um, in, in the sense that um, it uses very um, yeah, known, uh, 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 much known knowledge or uh, ideas of po policing in Germany and Switzerland from the last years and centuries. And yeah, let's say translates this into a digital technology or in a digital uh, tool. And because of that, it was important for us to, to highlight that uh, because of course it also um, confronts uh, uh, or criticizes this idea of this objective neutral technology will, which will save us all. If I may, may, may just add, um, I think, um, you know, we, we really try to to describe the, the lineage here, right? Because this is not something that, you know, just came out of the, uh, out of the, out of the blue. Um, but th there is, a, um, I think, a very strong tendency towards what, uh, you know, criminology has in, in the 1980s and 1990s identified as the transformation of uh, police organizations towards knowledge workers. Right. Whereas before, um, uh, police work was, you know, more or less um, strategic. Um, there was still a, a huge random element uh, to it. And um, what we see, particularly since the introduction of uh, uh, ICT technologies in, in the in the mid '90s uh, on a broad scale, is that the police have turned to um, the I would say uh, systematic production and an application of intelligence, right? And um, so they they try to put their their work on a on a much more solid knowledge base, I would say. And um, this also goes hand in hand with the transformation of of the police uh, in terms of the personnel. Um, so now we have in, in basically any any major police departments, uh, you have research and development divisions. You know where new technologies are being uh, tested, adopted early. Um, they work with uh, you know trial runs. They do field experiments. Um, they always try to see what new tech they could you know possibly incorporate. Um, and uh, this also means that um, you know that the people that get employed um, by the police. Um, you know, you, you still have the classical career model, you know, where you start as a patrol officer and, and then move through the ranks. Um, but nowadays, police forces actually recruit people, you know, straight out of university um, with diplomas in, in engineering and, and computer science. Um, 
And so this this gives them a, a whole other dimension in, in terms of you know how to produce uh, systematic knowledge um, in order to anticipate, in order to be more efficient. Um, and of course, as, as Simon was saying, this corresponds with you know larger rationales, um, the politically and also practically that now favor prevention over repression. And I think we have seen um, an amplification of that um, after 9/11 on a you know global scale. Um, but we see this also trickle down to to the very mundane work of of crime prevention. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, it, it brings it brings with it a a whole you know bag of, of of new issues and new problems. And I think this is why at the moment it is so so pertinent and so timely to to look into you know how data, how algorithms, how new technology um, actually transforms the the knowledge base of, of what we as society, um, um, of what we act, um, how we act and how we know and, you know, how we relate to each other. This being said, you, you mentioned both, uh, Simon, you've touched upon the difference between the person-based and place-based tools. Uh, you, Matthias, mentioned the broad variety of different, the different software tools and so on. I mean, not all predictive tools are born the same, right? So you have, uh, Comstad, Pretpol, Hunchlab, probably those that people will be familiar with. Uh, but you studied uh, actually a uh, software that is called Precubs, uh, which is not to be uh, mixed up with the famous Precogs in the Minority Report. <laughs> so could you tell us something more about the difference between these different softwares, the one that you studied, how how does it, uh, how, how do they differ? And, uh, and uh, because it, yeah. I think it's important to kind of make these distinctions clear because everything is kind of labeled under the same label of predictive policing, but the, but the logic is not always the same when it comes to this type of software. So maybe Simon, you... Absolutely right. It's uh, especially when turning to um, yeah, possible ethical questions or uh, problems, um, uh, questions of neutrality, discrimination and so on, it's very much important to um, really be precise and really be, um, yeah, to to really get an idea what is this software I'm studying actually doing. And um, I think it really starts with the question, is it about um, um, space or is it about persons, right? Um, and um, yeah, in, in Germany, um, there are um, some um, systems um, which focus mostly on person-related risks, which uh, also in, in Hess, uh, where they are using um, Palantir Gotham software. Um, in our book, we, um, um, however, focused on the um, um, yeah, place-based systems like um, Precops, the pre-crime observation system. It actually was um, named Precox in the beginning. Um, uh, and yeah, so the basic idea, and this also uh, points to um, the uh, yeah thing I, I told earlier. Um, the basic idea is um, yeah mo mostly based on um, near repeat theory. So the idea that um, a professional burglar, who uh, a serial burglar, that uh, he tends to after a successful burglary um, to um, yeah burgle again in the near vicinity of the first offense and shortly after that. And these near repeat offenses are the main target of 
pre-corps. So it, it is not really prediction in the strict sense of the word, but only the uh, identification um, if um, the offense, uh, a new um, burglary, the, the police um, um, is registering, right? A pre-corps then checks if this burglary was executed by a professional because only professional burglars tend to show this near-repeat pattern. So what pre-corps, in fact, does is checking if, for example, how um, the burglar got into the flat or the house. So the, checks the modus operandi. So if, if this was done um, in a professional way, um, so uh, this uh, so-called trigger, trigger element and uh, then if the um, software does not um, identify an anti-trigger element it says in the end okay this burglary was done by a professional so we have to um, um, yeah there is the risk that there is a burglary again shortly afterwards near this flat or house and the idea is then that police officers will drive there in the next days to um, prevent this follow-up burglary from happening. So, and this near repeat theory is empirically quite well tested and is the main criminological, or let's say a predictive pattern-based theory, which is used in every prediction uh, system in Germany and Switzerland. And um, this is, yeah, the main theory they're using. Um, and um, so this is more or less the, the second question. The first question would be, is the software I'm studying, um, is it person or um, space related? And the second question would be, how many theories and what kind of theories um, are, are used to inform the algorithm and to form the yeah, analyzing procedure of the software? And the second, uh, th third, important question is of course what data are used and integrated into the identification process the analyzing and prediction process and um yeah referring to precops um there are not really uh, much data used to be honest and uh, mostly um data are used which were already in the hands of the police before right so it's about where a berkeley uh, has happened what uh, things uh, were, were warped uh, from the burglar and these kinds of things. And this is, yeah, I mean, we can see that uh, such an approach is much less sophisticated than perhaps the Hunchlap prediction approach you already mentioned. And of course, this has certain uh, important implications for the uh, yeah, consequences and the transformative potential of the prediction software for for the police. Okay, this is very interesting. You've touched upon the criminological theory that underpins this uh, system. But uh, I mean, the way we imagine data, knowledge and intelligence is kind of also the epistemological uh, kind of uh, narrative, right? Uh, an imaginary uh, that uh, that is also theoretical in a sense, but more uh, maybe on a more abstract level. Uh, 
How would you connect this uh, epistemology maybe to the business logic of effectivization and this kind of idea of techno-scientific optimization that kind of underpins these technologies? Because these are also not necessarily neutral ideas, right? The way we imagine the knowledge is also uh, very specific in this case. What counts as knowledge, what counts as actionable insight and so on. This is also... Uh, very theoretical in a sense and 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 so so this should also maybe be kind of acknowledged along the lines uh, of the criminological theory that underpins it maybe you could say something more about these kind of epistemological issues Matthias yeah ab absolutely um completely on point um i think the the one we we speak about that in the book and the one uh, you know bigger point that we make here is that um actually all the, the criminological theories that went into predictive policing um, to inform the algorithm and to inform the model um, are in fact quite, I would say, um, repressive in the sense that they are geared towards the um, prevention of crime that is uh, in the making or in the happening. Um, and so there is a um, a structural tendency within predictive policing software to reinforce this approach to, to crime prevention or crime suppression. Um, what predictive policing does not give you any, any insights about is how the, um, the origins of crime could be addressed in the first place. Right? So it does not give you, uh, as, a, as an end user, it does not give you any, any options or suggestions um, as to how, for example, you know, neighborhood community programs um, could act as a as a much more efficient prevention measure um, that you know, as a, uh, on, on a on a broader scale and then the larger picture gives you the option to address crime differently. So I think the the general underpinning assumption in predictive policing um, is that crime is always bound to happen. Right. And so this renders then the task of the police um, to stop this from happening. Right. So it is not about, you know, um, preventing the occurrence of crime in the first place, but rather, you know, preventing the crime that is bound to occur from actually materializing. And so I think this is this is a, a very important twist that we have to, to keep in mind when it comes to, you know, how predictive policing works as a, as an actionable knowledge tool. And of course, there, there is, um, I would say, quite a big difference um, between this, you know, rather static model um, that we find in software tools such as Precops and the more dynamic approach that we find, for instance, in, uh, um, in, the, in the latest version of Precops that has been uh, rolled out, I think, in, in, in 2019, 2020. Um, that incorporates much more uh, much more data sources, and that aspires to model um, a neighborhood or a city as a as a dynamic uh, playing field, where you know different social forces interact that can be represented by data. And um, I think the the larger goal here is to create somewhat of a of an uh, of an operational picture. The kind of you know total information awareness uh, narrative that we that we know from the military, so that the police as an uh, um, as a response force would always be aware of everything that is going on in the city, you know, um, of uh, of dynamic and, and flexible risks 
uh, different types of crime that could occur, you know, within uh, different parts of the city at different points in time and, you know, be even more flexible. And I think uh, in, in these kinds of, you know, uh, they're called risk terrain models. Uh, they also have theoretical elements, of course, but they are much more data driven. They are much more reliant on uh, large amounts of data. Um, we had a research project actually by, by some colleagues here from another department at ETH Zurich who were experimenting with, you know, what kind of data and what kind of data sources could be used to dynamically interact um, uh, city life and crime. And, you know, they, they used all kinds of data. They used uh, uh, traffic data. They used uh, data on, on public events. They used... Uh, uh, I think even data from the from the public transport authorities and so on, and uh, so I think it, it becomes a bit more experimental, and this then of course you know correlates more closely with that kind of you know big data mindset where you try to exploit the data themselves and, and you know try to come up with new insights um, that are not based on established knowledge patterns, but they uh, that but that emerge from the data themselves in an inductive fashion. And so I think there is a, a tendency, and um, I mean we actually make that that uh, you know cautionary call at the end of the book um, that these tendencies they, they need to be closely monitored, because right now we can understand and, and and retrace the ways in which the police produce knowledge about the future, but that might actually change um, at some point when you know models become more complex, um, algorithms might become self-learning at some point in time. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, the opacity that then comes in uh, and, you know, where from an outside perspective, but maybe even from an inside perspective, you can't really retrace any longer how knowledge comes into being. And then this, you know, uh, poses uh, a couple of, you know, grand questions about the accountability for action, um, particularly when it comes to, to civil rights and, uh, and, and human rights violations. Very interesting and very important. I think what you said about the transformation of the idea of prevention is particularly important, right? The the fact that you do no longer address the structural conditions under which crime happens very often, but you rather just combat the effects of those conditions uh, is, is one thing. Of course, the second thing that you mentioned with the uh, uh, inability to trace back, which will probably only increase in the future of uh, the knowledge on which these decisions are being made and so on is also a question. And then the question that kind of emerges out of this is, okay, one thing is that uh, you have this software, you have this data, you have these analysts uh, in the office, but how does this knowledge get out on the street? How is it being acted upon, right? So this is something that you you develop and in theoretical terms, you use the notion of translation and kind of predictive Policing is a chain of translations between different actors, differently positioned within uh, fr within the organization and on the street and then the public, of course. Could you explain more about how you conceptualize this? What, what, what lies behind this notion of translation? Simon? Um, yeah, so um, this, this idea of train chain of translation or translation in general is from actor network theory and especially authors like Bruno Latour and Michel Callon. And basically the idea of translation is, um, first of all important is that trans translation means always transformation, right? That uh, things or knowledge is changing uh, in terms uh, or in 
uh, when it's uh, translated. And um, this is one was one important point. And the other was this socio-technical idea behind that. So the idea that it's about technologies and the um, human actors um, uh, on both sides, which uh, and their interplay, which um, yeah, um, yeah, leads to the emergence of a certain socio-technical dynamic, um, which in the end is called predictive policing, so to say. And um, we, we started to think about this socio-technical interaction um, because on the one hand, this is very, um, yeah, um, when you do your ethnographic research and shadow uh, data analysts um, or crime analysts, um, when they do the, the prediction process, uh, it's quite apparent that it's a socio-technical practice and it's not only a technological one. And it's also apparent when you think about the data which are used, which are mostly crime data, right? And these crime data, data are more or less direct translations from um, police uh, control practices and their ideas uh, 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 yeah, which people are to be controlled, which could be uh, um, suspicious and so on. And this, of course, uh, is directly reflected in the um, data warehouse of the police departments. And this is, so to say, the world, the, the algorithm is, um, yeah, is, is able to, to see and able to experience so to say. And so this is very um, yeah, apparent direct socio-technical link, which is very important in predictive policing. <clears throat> and a second point with why it was important uh, for us to analyze predictive policing as socio-technical uh, interplay is that the, the most of the um, critique towards predictive policing focused mostly on the technological part, like the algorithms and the data, which is, of course, both very important. But um, what is also very important is the question how police officers change their patrol work and their um, they, they, um, yeah, way of police in the areas where um, a high crime risk was predicted. And we saw that they tend to be, um, yeah, tend to control more offensively um, and also um, execute some, some kind of racial profiling because um, pre-cops, uh, it's, it's all about, mostly about burglaries. We already said that. And there is this yeah, narrative in German and um, Swiss police departments that um, rising case numbers uh, concerning burglary is directly connected to um, the, um, yeah, um, to, to Eastern European streets or robber gangs, burglary gangs. Um, and so police officers tend to look after certain people looking like Eastern U European people uh, when they are in these areas. And this is uh, yeah, more or less a direct implication of the prediction system and is, let's say, not really a purely... Um, um, social or, or human um, um, element in this process, um, but it's yeah executed by humans, and of course it's induced by the technology. But analyze, analyzing the technological part alone, when analyzing predictive policing, would not be suspicion, uh, uh, sufficient. And um, I th we think that 
especially when criticizing um, predictive policing or analyze it in a critical way, it's very important to also reflect how police officers um, yeah, do they work in these high risk or allegedly high risk areas? And um, this um, yeah, implicates, implies the question, how does policing change uh, or perhaps gets worse through crime predictions? Can, can I, can I uh, add one thing? Because I think uh, it's actually, uh, Simon touched upon this uh, early on, but um, then I spoke about other things. But, um, you know, in, in terms of theory, what, what translation does for us, for our analysis, is that, you know, it, it builds upon this idea that um, knowledge claims are in general contestable. But um, the more often they become transformed, the more hardened they become and the less contestable they are. So if I repeat something uh, in, in, in public discourse, if I repeat something over and over and over again, um, at some point, you know, a knowledge claim or a, or a claim, uh, a, a speech act becomes uh, solidified and, and consolidated. And it works quite similarly in terms of, you know, organizational knowledge practices. So in the end, uh, you have a, a map, you know, that really flattens the, the entire epistemic uh, process behind it and, you know, comes with a, with a nice uh, color-coded grid where, you know, red indicates, you know, there is high crime risk, there will be crime, you know, there, there we must go uh, to prevent what's, what's bound to happen. Um, but it's, of course, not that. Um, in the end, uh, uh, or in, in the beginning, rather, I should say, uh, there's, a, there's an entire, you know, possibility of, of, of future worlds. Um, and it starts, like, like Simon was saying, it starts with, uh, you know, police officers going to a crime scene, uh, producing data from the world and you know from that data that goes into a database that goes through a classification system um, from that data an algorithm then constructs um, a possible future um, and that possible future then becomes hardened um, when, a, when a memo a report is, is produced that you know um, underpins it with facts that underpins it with um, specific recommendations for action and that is also supported by a map, you know, uh, a map where, where the, the, the alleged risk area is, is clearly demarcated. And then, you know, as, as you know, these, these hardened, um, transformed uh, versions of, of the future, they become circulated within police organizations that the knowledge claim that comes into being through predictive policing tends to become a reality. So it goes from a possibility to an almost certainty that must be acted upon. And I think this is what, what Simon was, was saying uh, when we spoke with uh, patrol officers. They told us, I mean, they all they get is a, is a one-page handout that, you know, comes with a map and, and the color code. And they tell us, I mean, I, I look at this map and of course I know where to go, right? This is uh, intuitive. And I know that there is risk. I know that there will be crime. Um, whereas, you know, from an epistemical perspective, no, there is absolutely no you know, certainty that there will be higher risk. Um, so I think this, this notion of translation really allows us to, to retrace how knowledge is not only being produced, but also circulated and through a, a number of, of translation um, becomes hardened and becomes credible and becomes actionable. Very interesting. And I think this is a, this is a obviously a very important point, what you're saying here with this 
idea of hardened uh, facts and and of course all these epistemic things just fall off and and what you are left with is a kind of visually seductive uh, representation right so so there is something to this uh, idea of a beauty of this kind of hard data right there are these websites like data is beautiful and so on right it's very suggestive so there's also this kind of aesthetic power that comes with this kind of data representation which is extremely simplistic and simplified and where all these kind of processes that went into making that final representation kind of fall off and you're you kind of feel like okay now I can act because because this empowers me to act because it's this precisely so simple I would say but uh, I would still like to challenge you these are very good points but I would still like to challenge you on this Laturian uh, take uh, a little bit because <laughs> several point several parts in the book you you mentioned the notion of alignment and I got a kind of an ambiguous uh, sense of what uh, what what that actually refers to uh, and and it kind of uh, triggered in me this reading where you kind of think of this alignment as a sort of harmony which almost appears to be good where kind of resistance and misalignment is something that uh, kind of undermines the potential success of predictive policing, right? If there is too much resistance in the system and it's too much misalignment, it won't work properly. But what is then working properly in this sense uh, is a question, I think. And on page 10, you write, for instance, uh, only when uh, key human and non-human elements are properly aligned, will knowledge and power be successfully transmitted from the back office to the street level and be able to inform patrolling and crime prevention strategies. So I was wondering a bit about, okay, but what does it really mean properly aligned uh, and who defines that in a sense? And, and, uh, and what, what does this success uh, mean? And what actually also for the people being policed, uh, right, on, 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 on a certain level. And also uh, in the next uh, next uh, citation comes from page 124, where you write that in the words of Latour, if inscription do not travel well, translation processes might come to a halt and the production of power that makes people do things will stop. Crime maps and predictive policing memos must thus be carefully crafted in order to enroll such different actors as regional chiefs, local supervisors, staff planners, and not least petrol officers in a joint cause. So there's this kind of idea of a, of a joint cause for the predictive policing to function, right? Uh, so I, I would like to challenge you here a bit on this idea of alignment, because to a certain degree, uh, for me, uh, as also an organizational researcher and so on, it kind of uh, results in a flat depiction of the world, uh, where where this kind of consists of networks, bit and pieces of humans and non-humans that are to be somehow aligned. Uh, and, and I think uh, to a certain degree, this vision also uh, is one that underpins uh, neoliberalism uh, and, and also reflects, for instance, management theory, right? In management theory, the, the, f the foremost goal is to align the objectives and strategic uh, objectives of the institution with, uh, with, with the actions of the individuals within the institution who should then embrace and align themselves with the organizational goals for the organization to appear as harmonious. So harmony is like, uh, the key element of HR theory these days, right? Uh, and 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 so this is very much, uh, very much kind of a uh, uh, rhetoric uh, of uh, of this kind of uh, harmonious, smooth uh, functioning that kind of struck me that uh, that I would like you to to kind of uh, reflect upon. And also, it struck me that you actually never use the word such as inequality, for instance. And whenever you speak of power, it goes with power and knowledge. It's kind of like a it's kind of two words that always go together in the book. There is uh, no concept of 
power, for instance, as you know, as you find in cr kind of critical algorithmic studies, the power of corporations, the power of private uh, companies, the power of the state, the power of elites, maybe the power of top management. It kind of appears as if you know uh, these actors are kind of positioned in 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 this networked, uh, very flat world, and and in a sense, uh, in a sense, it kind of reflects even this kind of technological. Um, technological rhetoric, right, of seamlessness, harmonization, streamlining, compatibility, uh, optimization, efficiency, speed. So I, I felt a bit that uh, when you kind of analyze, you tend to sometimes fall into using the same concepts as as actually those that underpin those technologies. Maybe it is just my impression and maybe you can correct me. But, <laughs> but I was just uh, very curious as how you would answer those questions. <laughs> First of all, I think uh, these are very good questions, um, and I'm, I'm actually quite happy that you asked them because um, this this gave us some some unease, around both during the research itself, um, but also during the writing of the book. And I mean, first of all, I think it is a, a common you know quandary that you you know that there is a risk that you you know you fall into this trap of reproducing what you research, um, particularly when you do ethnographic research that you know puts you into very close company um, with your research subjects. Um, that being said, um, I actually did a reflective uh, piece that is that is soon coming out on, on these exact questions. Um, Okay, how to how to put this? Um, I don't I don't think I mean I guess we're we're really trying to to tiptoe a, a very fine line here between you know being a an observer and a describer um, and a evaluator, um, and I think most of the of the framing that we use is actually due to our perspective on the organization of, 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 of a police department, right? And um, so in a sense, of course, we reproduce in our analysis the challenges that our interviewees have told us about and the, the frictions that we have witnessed when doing ethnography. And I think friction and, uh, and, and misalignment actually do play a a pretty big role in our analysis. Um, they might not be always explicitly in the front, but they always implicitly inform the our analysis of the ways in which police departments try to produce power and knowledge. And I say power and knowledge because you you raised that point. Um, and I think our understanding here of power is is one that is you know obviously pretty much uh, inspired by Foucault. So it is not about, um, you know, hard power in the world out there. But since we do understand police organizations as knowledge organizations, um, it is a form of power that comes into being through epistemic practices. Right? And, and this is, I think, where the, the close connection of these two terms um, comes, comes uh, into being and, and, you know, materializes. Um, but again, you know, returning to the point that we, we tiptoe a line here, um, I think this is actually something that is pretty much true for for much of STS work. You know, going back to the to the 70s, 80s, um, 
you have people, you know, trying to, to analyze how through the production of knowledge in, in science and in engineering and technology and design, um, social orderings come into being. Um, I think for, for SDS, this has mostly been uh, less of a problem than for, for IR, critical security studies, criminology, etc. Because often, you know, when you study scientific practices, then, you know, you study something that is of great importance in and of, it, uh, in and of itself, but um, it does not have such, you know, potentially vast societal repercussions um, uh, as compared to, to security practices. And, I mean, we, we dedicate an entire chapter to, to the normative uh, and, and ethical questions that arise from predictive policing. Um, but since we did not study them empirically, we felt like it was important to engage with these questions and to engage with them critically. Um, but our focus analytically was really more on how organizations do knowledge. And I think the, the focus on practices here is, is quite an important one because by describing these practices, we of course end up describing how our interviewees and you know our interlocutors, um, how they did things. So, I mean, cl classical social science dilemma, right? So you, you try to, to be analytical and empirical um, at the same time. And sometimes, depending on, on how, you, how you are able to, to frame it in the written word, um, there might be a bit of an impression that you go either too much on, on the one hand or too much on the other hand. Um, and I think actually what we see in, in a lot of the literature on predictive policing is that you know, there, there is a tendency to, to step over the line in terms of uh, making two grand normative claims about what's going on. You know, I mean, all these, you know, analysis in terms of, you know, how this could impact um, civil liberties and human rights, they are, they are absolutely on point. But I think they, they tend to become a bit overblown because people don't look at the actual organizational practices. Right. And so we decided to do exactly that because that's where we, we saw the gap in the literature. Um, and I think, I mean, we, we, are, we are not, um, our mission is, is not to assist the police, but our mission was, our you know, self-imposed self mission was uh, to really uncover how organizational knowledge practices work. And, you know, kind of drawing out the challenges and then also the ways in which practitioners overcome these challenges in terms of, you know, creating alignment. Um, I think this this was our main analytical focus. And I mean, this is, of course, a, a notion of translation that is uh, based more on Calon than on Latour. Um, Calon was the one who, who really showed how, you know, in order to um, achieve a goal, um, how a network of, of human and non-human actors must be mobilized and must be aligned to achieve this goal. And there are discursive practices, there are technical practices, there are organizational, you know, uh, cultural factors that come in. Um, but uh, to really retrace how a, a full chain of translation, you know, from uh, data generation 
to crime prevention uh, on, on the street level works, I think it was super important to draw out how these kinds of, you know, alignments um, are constructed in practice. And I think this is really key in, in trying to understand how predictive policing as a knowledge practice does work and um, how it actually comes to matter um, in, in the lives of, of people. Very, very good good answer <laughs> and, and convincing also. Uh, you touched upon this uh, idea of friction in the beginning uh, when you were answering my... <laughs> And uh, and I thought that uh, here I think it would be interesting if you could just say something more of what you describe in the book uh, as kind of trade-offs, uh, or it could be even called as a kind of cost-benefit analysis that the, that the, the practitioners have to do in response to the logic of predictive policing technologies, and that is to either act fast on potentially unreliable data uh, or to wait for a longer time for consolidated results, but risk a kind of outdated information. Uh, so, so this is exactly one of those frictions, I would imagine. Uh, could you maybe tell us more about how that plays out in practice? Um, a good example is the near repeat theory, um, which are, we already described. And so the idea is that a professional burglar tends to, um, yeah, burgle again after shortly afterwards uh, he was successfully um, burglaring uh, into a flat or a house. And um, the the idea is that, or the hypothesis is that after three days, the risk the re risk of repetition, um, um, yeah, goes down again drastically. So um, there is the need for for the police to react fast, to re react fast enough to really be able to yeah prevent this repetition uh, from happening uh, um, by moving into this risk area. And um, as we already uh, said, um, these ideas behind that are not really new, um, but um, because uh, of digital transformation and the um, algorithms and so on, and the invention, so to say, of crime prediction software, it is uh, the police is now able to um, yeah, be fast enough in identify in identifying these near repeat patterns, and because of that, uh, the police is um, fast enough in yeah um, sending uh, patrol officers in these areas. And um, there we have so basically, predictive policing is very much about about um, yeah um, 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 time uh, about fastness. And this, I mean, directly uh, touches the point you, you, you mentioned earlier, Teresa, that um, there is this problem for police that they need to be fast on the one hand. On the other hand, the data um, um, are, yeah, uh, not, they get better um, with the time, right? So because they are corrected by police officers, they are at the crime scene, they are writing something in their note uh, notebooks, for example, and then they are uh, in, at the police department afterwards and they correct some things, some perhaps important data. Um, but um, the system, the prediction software already made its predictions because, as I said, uh, it needed uh, to be fast, a fast prediction. So this is um, uh, yeah a problem for the police. And uh, this uh, is also a good example for this yeah 
need of socio-technical uh, translation, so to say, the translation of this idea of predictive policing into certain police practices with certain organizational yeah, routines uh, and cultures. Very good. And following from this, I think the second type of friction that you describe is this uh, relation uh, between humans and machines, basically, uh, where the algorithmic recommendations and analysis uh, uh, can be opposed uh, to professional judgment and discretion. You describe that police officers, especially patrol officers, are used to having uh, quite a degree of discretionary autonomy, let's say, uh, and they try to kind of keep the the algorithms in uh, in place, uh, right? Keep the technology uh, not interfering terribly much with with their practice and kind of trying to oppose it, maybe in certain certain uh, certain ways. So uh, and then there is also this relation between the the analyst who sits in the office and uh, and the officer who goes into the street, right? And they have maybe different ideas about how to prevent crime, what types of knowledge are actually more important, maybe. Uh, experience, judgment, discretion is more valued by one and uh, solid analysis is more valued by the other. Could you say something about these kind of tensions? Matthias? Oh, I mean, these, these are actually uh, quite quite key, I would say, in, uh, in the question of you know, how predictive policing actually comes to matter. Um, and you, you outlined the, the general friction here, I think, uh, quite aptly. Um, and this has always been the case that, you know, the, the crime analyst um, maybe produces more, more structured, uh, more in-depth uh, intelligence about um, their relation between crime and society, whereas the patrol officer, you know, based on a, on a long lineage of, of discretion, um, acts upon experience, acts upon, uh, you know, expertise. Um, that might be more intangible, that might be a bit more gut-based, um, but that is actually justified by the level of tacit interaction that takes place in the streets. And so you always have that, that clash between the back office and, uh, and the front line, so to say. Um, and I think this, this has always been there, um, but now it's getting aggravated because now you have these uh, predictive policing tools um, working in a, in a highly automated fashion, um, working quite dynamically, so that you know, situational insights and, and situational intelligence is updated um, multiple times a day. And so the result of that is that, uh, that the patrol officer in their patrol car in the streets gets updated intelligence on what to do, how to do it, and where to do it multiple times per day. And this is perceived by patrol officers as being bossed around by a computer. And I think this is, like I said, um, a general problem or a general you know, issue, a, a friction that has existed before predictive policing but now it becomes more intense. And now there is a conflict that is not between the analyst and the, uh, the patrol officer, but it's between a machine and a patrol officer. And so we have seen, or people have been telling us that it is actually um, 
a bit easier, so to say, um, to ignore a recommendation that was given by a machine. Right. I mean, police officers still technically, um, when they do patrols, they still technically have a, a lot of discretion. So, you know, they, they get the handout, they get the map, uh, they get the, the you know, alleged uh, high risk locations. Um, but in the end, you know, when they do their job, uh, they are completely free to ignore them. Mm. And in Germany and Switzerland, we have a, a very particular situation where the locations of patrol officers uh, during their shift uh, must not be monitored, legally speaking, because, uh, you know, we, we have quite strong uh, uh, unions that, uh, you know, based on uh, privacy and data protection arguments, have actually um, reached uh, the, 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 the status quo that, uh, you know, no GPS data is being transmitted. So there, there's no monitoring. And uh, so in the end, uh, a lot of the actual predictive policing, you know, the, the kind of translation to the street level is trust-based. And so one of the, the key um, frictions or key challenges that we have seen or one of the, the key, you know, translation alignment um, challenges is how to actually establish trust between different divisions that work completely independently of each other that have very little in common in terms of professional practices, in terms of, uh, you know, everyday work tasks and so on. And um, so this is this is where a lot of um, communication efforts have to be put into place. And this is also why visual artifacts have such a prominent role in predictive policing. Because if you can make a convincing knowledge claim that, you know, transmitted through through a map um, that there will be crime, then this is really key in convincing patrol officers to act upon the predictions. If you can't manage to, to make that convincing claim, so, uh, you know, if, if the translation fails, um, so to say, then there is a big chance that, you know, predictions will actually, you know, just go out the window because no one will act upon them. Hmm. I find it really interesting what you're saying also, especially with this one thing is to get this kind of morning briefing and uh, get a map handed out and okay, then you go about your day. But if you keep getting these kind of notifications and recommendations throughout the day multiple times, it's kind of an amusing <laughs> irony that the kind of uh, predictive policing is unable, creates a kind of a totally unpredictable day for, for the officer, right? <laughs> so, so you cannot, you, you kind of have to constantly adjust your behavior and, and so on. So this becomes very demanding on, on, on the human, right? For a machine, this is not a problem, but for a human, this is, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is very difficult. And, uh, and, uh, and one can also ask, uh, is this actually beneficial, uh, to, to kind of create this uh, this uh, very stressed uh, officer uh, constantly responding to some kind of stimuli right this kind of this behaviorist uh, idea that you should uh, you should respond uh, according to this kind of algorithmic uh, recommendations and and we find it in uh, in our whole environment, right? If uh, on the computers you're supposed to buy, click this, and so on, so you're being pushed into directions by these kind of technologies. So it is not uh, not um, it is quite understandable that there is a resistance to this kind of being pushed around by by a system without a face, right? <laughs> so, so I think this is, these are really interesting uh, questions that you also raise uh, in the book, and uh, and it also speaks to this kind of 
result of managerial imperatives, right? This kind of idea of rationalizing and optimizing people and their behavior. Uh, so, so, so in that sense, also you kind of try to make people act a bit like machines. It's not, or in the machine's image, right? So, so, so this also must create kind of tensions, which are not only pertaining to the autonomy or judgment, but also the way that you're being governed through your day is being governed and structured by these kind of recommendations, unless you reject them. And and, and it is a question maybe as to how long uh, time <laughs> you still have to be able to reject them. Maybe in the future, you won't be able to do that anymore. Maybe in the future, you will be tracked uh, with a GPS and, and your actions will be correlated and fed automatically. Right, so so there is this, uh, there is maybe this kind of sense of uh, fear uh, as to how far you can go with these technologies. This actually uh, brings us back to the, to where we started, right? And um, again, I, th I think we we see here a, a quite substantial clash of different imaginaries. So, if we look at the narratives that are being presented to us um, by the tech industry. Um, by companies such as Palantir, um, but also others, um, what they are going for is um, this. Yeah, I don't know how to put it else. Uh, is this kind of you know dynamic total information awareness that you know gives you continuous uh, insights about situational developments that enables um, immediate flexible responses, um, and then on the other hand, you have the human and the organization that are not built to deliver such flexible responses, you know? Um, and I think the police is probably a, a bit of an extreme example here because, you know, we, we all know that public administration, you know, tends to be a bit, uh, a bit, a bit behind the, the curve um, when it comes to adaptability. Um, but it, it's really, um, I think one, we, we have this, this, this one, one interview where uh, a senior officer told us that they actually stopped doing the uh, analytics multiple times per day because they found it to be detrimental to, to the, the practices of, of the patrol officers. And he compared predictive policing to, to the weather forecast. And so he was like, yeah, you know, you, you watch the weather forecast in the morning and if the forecast says rain, then you're going to pack your umbrella and then, you know, weather forecasts are like super dynamic and, and based on a huge amount of data. And then maybe maybe two hours later, um, the forecast says, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to rain. But that doesn't matter because you already left the house and you already packed your umbrella. So does it change your situation? Does it change your, your, your daily life at, at that point in time? No, it doesn't. And I think this is, interestingly, what many of the police departments that we engaged with this is the way um, they approach predictive policing. So they wanted to have a, um, how can I put this, a, a general overview of what could be at stake for the day. And then, you know, try to fit this into existing practices, try to fit this into established routines that, you know, have grown over, over decades. And it's kind of tough to tell, uh, to, to all of a sudden, um, unhinge an entire organization. Um, and I mean, you have to think about very banal things such as, you know, shift schedules. You know, people are not supposed to be uh, working uh, in the morning and then again 
uh, in the evening. You know, they, they're supposed to have a, a normally structured workday that allows them to also have a family life and, and, and a private life. Um, if we really radically followed through on this idea of flexibilization, and I think we also see this in, in other domains, such as, you know, for instance, airport security, we have uh, peak times in, in the morning and then uh, again in, in the late afternoon. And uh, people have uh, have layoffs um, of five, five, six uh, hours in, in between. Um, I mean, from a societal perspective, this can't be good, right? Because this is this is not how we as society work, live and, and, and relate to each other. And so I think you, your question is a really important one because it draws out a, a very fundamental conflict um, that we're probably going to face also in other areas. You know, the, the more data-based decision-making and, and strategic planning and the more automation we face as society, um, the more we're going to have to, to grapple with the, with the individual life repercussions, so to say. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks for the question. <laughs> Now, these are important questions. So uh, I think towards the uh, end now, I would just like to uh, raise the question, which is also the title of one of your chapters. Well, does it work? Because uh, you have a quite uh, nice discussion in the book about, uh, okay, what are the criteria of success of pol predictive policing? Is it, okay, we've decreased the number of burglaries by a certain percentage, and now we can pride ourselves as a department? Or is it more that, uh, oh, we've implemented this technology quite well, which uh, shows that we are innovative uh, police department, we are, we are data-driven, we are a knowledge organization, we follow the latest trends, and hence we are forward-looking, future-looking, and so on. So, so the criteria of success is maybe more the successful implementation and the organizational and structural reform of the organization and of its knowledge production, rather than necessarily the fact that this software as such works, because as you show, it is quite difficult to prove that uh, since you prevent crime, how do you know what, what kind, <laughs> how much crime would have happened if you didn't have that system, right? It's, a, it's almost statistically impossible to prove. So, so the criteria of success become quite different. And, and this kind of led me to think, well, is this all just a kind of a managerial uh, tool to, to reorganize police forces in alignment, right? Because it aligns the logic of the technology, aligns a lot with managerial imperatives, like you were saying, flexibilization, right? If you want to implement flexibilization in police, well, let's have a tool that by default demands flexibilization, right? Uh, so, 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 so these kind of questions kind of popped up in my mind. And, and I was thinking, could, could you maybe say something about, okay, if this is the criteria of success, uh, and, and we kind of not, not, do not really have to look if the technology actually works or not, uh, and, and these questions, what is the future of, uh, of, of police forces? How do you envision that the police force in Germany or Switzerland will look in, let's say, 15, 20 years? <laughs> Easy question. <laughs> Simon. We should start with the question, uh, if, it, if it works. Uh, so, um, Basically, um, I mean, you, you already gave um, the answer and we don't know that. But um, I think that from a yeah sociological standpoint, this is quite a, a good answer because it, it leaves us in a, or it leaves the key actors in a certain epistemic vacuum, right? So they don't really know if it works. And so it's quite interesting to follow their arguments 
why do they still use predictive policing or why do they uh, still think that it's uh, a success successful implementation or a successful pilot project when they implemented it so i think that this was really uh, interesting um and by the way especially when reading the um the the reports they mostly um wrote after they projects and mostly we had the um, these are open reports mostly so we had the opportunity to to uh, look really specifically to look it up uh, why they think uh, they projects they approaches were a success and it was really interesting to see that they of course right okay we do not know really in terms of evidence and numerical uh, evidence if predictive policing here in our department really worked because we also, although they they see that crime uh, figures um decreased concerning burglaries they uh, were not able to really uh, relate these decreasing numbers to crime prediction software because mostly um the implementation of crime prediction software was one element in a broader yeah a plan of restructuring or, or um, enhancing the capabilities of the police especially concerning burglaries because this is also a point which we did not uh, yet speak about but which was important for the implementation process of predictive policing in Germany and Switzerland because um, it was it the, the rising burglary numbers became a political problem and uh, uh, let's say a police organizational problem because some media uh, outlets started to criticize police and, and politicians because of these rising numbers. And so, yes, I would say in predictive policing and its implementation was also a political um, um, yeah, decision or it was some kind of political tool. But uh, I would... But I also think that the key actors in these implementation processes also really hoped of, or uh, were yeah, some kind of convinced that crime prediction software is indeed helpful. So I think it wasn't was not only a purely political maneuver to 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 demonstrate innovativeness or uh, actionability, but they are well, I think also convinced. Um, on the one hand, that pre crime prediction software is a, su a successful prevention tool. And I think some also hope that they will be able in their field projects to demonstrate um, or to, to gain evidence that crime prediction software is successful. So we had this evaluation study in um, Baden-Württemberg, which was not successful in the sense that it was not able to clearly demonstrate, yes, crime prediction software helped us to prevent certain amount of crimes. This was not, um, um, the, um, yeah, they weren't successful in doing that. And Teresa, you already more or less said why they weren't able, because it's just simply um, nearly statistically, um, yeah, it's just too hard to really, um, yeah, demonstrate that. Um, so, but yeah, as I said, um, this is from a sociological standpoint quite interesting because you have those people who are in favor of crime prediction software and they have their, their arguments 
um, they uh, a hypothesis why this is successful or necessary or important. And you have also the critics who have their own arguments. And um, it's not really also from our position as a researcher trying to be neutral and objective. We also do not know if these software, these algorithms really have a positive impact or not. I think this is also a very important um, factor. Also, I think in 15 years, we're going to have uh, flying police cars and robots. <laughs> Good, let's bet on that. <laughs> so any final words that you may have, words of caution, maybe? You, you summarize uh, or at the end of your book, you come up with several points of caution. You've touched upon some, but if there are some more caution that is necessary, maybe you can tell us now or never. <laughs> Uh, as, as is the case with any emergent technology, um, I think there are debates to be had. And um, I'm, I'm actually quite happy. Um, you know, we, we've seen a, a rather um, big explosion of, in, the, in the literature on predictive policing in, in, in the past I don't know, five years or so. Um, and we have a lot of critical voices. Um, and I think these voices are starting to, to resonate with police departments. Um, And I think it's 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 really it's it's important that all the involved actors understand what is at stake, um, because I think that there is a lot of uh, you know uh, very very sensitive issues at stake. Um, policing is the production maintenance of of social order, right? So it's 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 really uh, touching upon one of the the core aspects of of society and regardless of, of how it's being transformed, it is being transformed. I think it is safe to say that. And so in order to have an informed debate about that, I think we need even more empirical research. And I think, you know, to, to end this on a, on a positive note, maybe, um, I think that there is a, a glimpse of hope, you know, coming out of our empirical research, because um, actually the people that we spoke with at almost all of the departments That we that we engaged with, um, they were quite um, quite aware of, of the issues and they were aware um, of what is at stake. And there was quite a, I mean, to, to, to call it surprising is, is probably a bit uh, a bit mean, but there was a, a surprisingly high level of reflexivity that we encountered. Um, of course, you know that that does not apply to. To every individual working in a police department, um, police departments are complex organizations that are, you know, comprised of, you know, many different um, different parts and and, and cogs and levers and whatnot. Um, but there seems to be a general willingness, at least, um, you know, speaking for for Germany and Switzerland, um, that police departments are willing to to engage. Right? So they're, they're willing to, to have a dialogue and they're willing to let people from the outside assist them. Um, and by assisting, I mean um, pointing to problems, you know, in the, the notion of, uh, you know, critical thinking that, uh, that, that, that Dewey has introduced, um, the kind of uh, a common acknowledgement of, problem, uh, of problems and then also a, a joint endeavor to try and overcome these problems. Again, you know, how this looks then in the end um, will probably be a, 
a bit of a different part of the story, but at least there seems to be a general willingness um, to do these things. And so uh, I think that there is still hope um, and there are debates to be had and these debates are happening. And so that's, that's a good thing. And this is, I think, everything um, a researcher can hope for. Many thanks. It's great to have some hope and have some optimistic conclusion to this enlightening conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs> this was uh, Simon Egbert. Thanks for having us. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. This was uh, Simon Egbert and Matthias Lies on their recent book Criminal Futures, Predictive Policing and Everyday Police Work published in 2021 with Routledge. Thank you for listening. <laughs>